to the Gibson Girl Review, the book review podcast that rescues antique novels from the doom of mere decor and puts them back where they rightfully belong, in your to-be-read pile. Join us every week as we rediscover forgotten stories from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and uncover just how entertaining and relevant they still are more than a century later. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend us your ears, <laughs> or at least your earbuds, because we are back for another exciting episode of the Gibson Girl Review. I'm Amy Drown, as you all know by now, <laughs> but with me today in the studio is my very first guest reviewer. So wherever you are listening right now, I want you to set down your phone, set down your kids, free up those hands, and join me in a round of applause to welcome my friend and author, Gwendolyn Gage. Hello. I'm excited to be here. I truly love this podcast. And I am thrilled to have you here. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with Gwen, she's a writer like myself, and she and I have actually been members of a critique group for Gosh, I don't even know how long anymore. It's been years. Yes, easily a decade. We'll say hi to the other two members. Hey, Sandra. Hey, Jeanette. Hi. We wish you were here too. <laughs> but there is a very specific reason that as soon as I knew today's book would be today's book, <laughs> I knew that I had to get you on the show to review this particular book with me. Mm -hmm. Gwen grew up as the daughter of diplomats, which is so cool. <laughs> so she spent her teen years living abroad in places like Hungary, Indonesia, and the Philippines. She returned to the States in 2001 and attended Christ for the Nations Institute, where she majored in theology. She currently lives in Kentucky with her husband, who is outside mowing the lawn right now. So <laughs> yep. you all might hear him on the show, too. <laughs> And her two incredibly adorable children, whom she homeschools. Gwen writes both inspirational fantasy and historical romance novels set in the Regency era. Mm -hmm. And it is her hope with her writing to offer readers not just romance and adventure, but uplifting stories that glorify God and point to him as the answer. And her first published novel, For the Sake of One Lost is a time travel fantasy about a modern girl from Texas who falls through a wormhole and ends up smack dab in the middle of the Roman Empire during the reign of Nero, mm -hmm. which is exactly why she is here discussing today's book with me, because she spent three years researching ancient Rome in order to write her own book. So she is a true subject matter expert here, folks, and the absolute perfect guest to join me in a discussion of today's old book. But before we get to that, when and how did you first fall in love with history and with old books? Well, I was homeschooled and my parents had a huge collection of classic novels right at my disposal. Yeah. And right around the time I read Ivanhoe Ooh. and Pride and Prejudice. Good ones. And then discovered Shakespeare's comedies. <laughs> That's when my love of historical fiction really took off. Yes, those are good. I didn't have access to a lot of television back then because I was overseas. I just ate up a lot of books. I loved them. 
I love the fact that you mentioned Sir Walter Scott and Jane Austen and Shakespeare, mm -hmm. because all three of those are favorites of mine. Plus, they're actually comparable authors to the book and the author that we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. And that might seem hard to imagine, but hopefully if we do our job on today's episode, you all will understand why today's book can be compared to Ivanhoe, Pride and Prejudice, and Shakespeare. Yes, I love it. So knowing that you are a huge fan of our podcast, do you have a favorite book or episode from the show so far? I loved so many and you all keep adding books to my TBR list. Which is awesome. Yes. That's our total goal is yes. we want readers to keep reading these books. So I loved Caught in the Mesh of the Modern Whirligig, mm. which was about poor dear Theodora. I love that book. Yeah. <laughs> but if I must name a favorite episode. It would be sometimes even today, there is the chance Samaritan. Oh, yeah. You really got me interested in Richard Harding Davis. Well, you know, I am never going to argue with anyone who wants to read Richard Harding Davis. Mm -hmm. And that episode was actually our number one most downloaded episode from season one. Really? Yes. It was so fun. I love it. But this is a new season, and we're talking about a different author today. In fact, today we have another epic book to share with all of you. Perhaps even more epic than Ben-Hur. Yes. And you all know how much I love Ben-Hur. <laughs> so what are we waiting for? Let's dive into today's all-new old book review. Okay, this is a total music nerd thing. <laughs> I am completely aware of that, but I cannot count the number of times that I have listened to the music for today's episode. I love it so much. And that's one thing I just love about all of the podcast episodes, how you coordinate the music for each of your book reviews. <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite parts, too. Yes. Music and books always go together in my head. They do. And that music is definitely evocative of today's book. Right. It is so energetic and upbeat. Yes. I want it for my writing playlist. Yeah, it is so good. It's actually <laughs> one of the first songs I ever found for the podcast. And the moment I heard it, the word that immediately came to mind was conflagration. That's such a great word. It is such a great word. <laughs> and it's the perfect word for this book. Definitely. So let's tell everyone what book we're reviewing today. Today's book is Quo Vadis, A Narrative of the Time of Nero by Henrik Sienkiewicz, first published in Polish in 1896 and first published in English in 1897. I know this book was very famous when it first came out, but I think it's more of a forgotten book now. Yeah, I agree. Most people who've heard of Quo Vadis today have probably only heard of the movie from 1951 starring Robert Taylor and Deborah Carr. Yes. That's why this book was a perfect choice to discuss on the podcast, because like we had in Ben-Hur last season, 
Most people who know this story don't know the original book itself. Mm -hmm. Although Sienkiewicz won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1905. Yeah. So he was a pretty big deal. And this book was definitely popular in its day. Yeah. And I believe this is also the first novel you've shared on the podcast that wasn't originally written in English, right? Yes. So this is a whole episode of firsts. We have our first guest reviewer, our first international author, our first Nobel Prize winner. And today's episode will also be our first to offer bonus content, which we'll talk about in a minute. So other than the awesome music, <laughs> why did you pick Quo Vadis for today's book review? Okay, so this is a total history nerd thing. I'm aware <laughs> of that. But I am always looking at the calendar for famous historical events. Yeah. And one of the nerdy history things that I know from my past studies is that this week is the anniversary of the burning of Rome in AD 64. I love how you timed that. That's just so cool. <laughs> and that actual historical event is a huge part of the plot of Quo Vadis. Yes, absolutely. So it had to be this book this week. Uh huh. Plus, it is just such a great romantic dramatic story mm -hmm. that is kind of a summertime read. You know, mm -hmm. it's a good beach read. Yeah. And it's definitely a book that still deserves to be read and discussed today. Yes, definitely. I had heard Quo Vadis was not only a great love story, but a treasure trove of historical detail about the ancient Roman era. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I was curious to know if the author had uncovered anything about the time period I didn't already know about. So when you invited me to review this book, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I am dying to hear what you think about Sienkiewicz's research and all that good stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to talk about it. But before we get too carried away talking about this book, let's tell our listeners what Quo Vadis is all about. Okay, the short answer is Quo Vadis is the story of Marcus Vinicius, mm -hmm. who is a Roman soldier and aristocrat who falls in love with a Christian girl named Lygia during the reign of Nero. Mm -hmm. The long answer is this love story is set against a huge backdrop of political intrigue and scandal in the imperial court. Mm -hmm. All of the debauchery and dissipation of Roman society, which is literally on the brink of civil war yeah. in this time period. Mm -hmm. It's about the foundations of Christianity, the burning of Rome and the persecution of the early Christians. The canvas of this story is panoramic. Yes. It's vast. Absolutely. And that kind of begs the question, what genre does this book even fit into? Because when you hear it's about early Christians and persecution, your first instinct might be to label this book as biblical fiction. Yeah, I can see that, especially since it would have been very well connected to Ben-Hur in the minds yes. of its readers back in the 1890s. Yeah, exactly. But I don't think that's right. Yeah, I would actually say this is historical romance. Yeah, I agree. This is definitely your big, bold, swashbuckling kind of historical fiction. This is very much along the lines of an Ivanhoe yeah. or Alexander Dumas. Another favorite. Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so good. And a lot of the original reviews actually compared this book mm -hmm. to Dumas. Oh, really? Yes. So that's something modern readers need to understand up front. Because understanding what genre Quo Vadis fits into really helps set the right expectations as you're reading this story. It does. Absolutely. And that makes perfect sense because it's pretty intense. It's not just a simple, well, they meet and they fall in love. No, no. <laughs> not even close. No. <laughs> in fact, Marcus is an absolute brute when we first meet him. 
And his intentions toward Lydia are anything but honorable. Yes, Marcus Vinicius is the most horrible, horrible person you have ever met yes. at the beginning of a story. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Lydia, the heroine, runs away from him more than once in this story. She does. And you cheer for her when she does. Yes, you know? I was. I was cheering her on yes. big time. But that's the whole point of this plot. It's all centered around the conversion of Marcus Vinicius and how this lust, really, mm -hmm. that he has for Lydia is transformed into a love story that by the end, you actually are rooting for. Yes. It's an incredible skill to pull off as a writer. Oh, it is. But before we get into that, I think people might want to know a little bit about the title, Quo Vadis. We should probably explain what that means. Yes. You don't see Latin book titles every day. No, you do not. So some translation probably wouldn't hurt. Right. So what does Quo Vadis mean? Quo Vadis is Latin for where are you going? Or as they say in the King James Shakespearean style of English, whither goest thou? Mm -hmm. Which, thanks to the translators, is how every character in this book talks. Exactly. It's a quote from the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the Gospel of John, when at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples that where he is going, they cannot follow now. And Peter answers, where are you going, Lord? Which in Latin is Quo Vadis, Domine. Exactly. Why do you think Sienkiewicz chose Quo Vadis as the title of this story? Hmm. Why not something more traditional like The Flames of Passion? Or, <laughs> there are so many other titles that would have summed this up too. Yes. Why Quo Vadis? Well, maybe because Lycia is always running away from Vinicius and making him chase her. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right? He is a total stalker at the beginning of this book. He that is. is so true. Yes. But seriously, the whole question of where are you going is a real theme of the book. Mm -hmm. And it's a question every character ends up asking at one point or another in the story mm -hmm. as they are forced to contemplate where they're going in life, in their careers, as well as their personal and spiritual beliefs. Yeah, I totally agree. There is a literal, practical meaning that definitely applies. For me, I've also always thought of this in terms of a more philosophical, where are you going with this? Yes. What are you up to? Mm -hmm. And that's another theme of this book and in real life, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't get to see that road ahead. You know, we are only given enough light for the step that we're on, as the saying goes. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to, do we have the faith and trust even when we don't understand what's happening, even when we don't know where God is going? Yes. So what was your initial reaction the first time you read Quo Vadis? I have always been struck by the scope of this story. It is so big, yet so detailed. Yes. Sienkiewicz really paints this broad story, yes. but there's so much minutia to it. It's this incredible mix. I love the detail, yeah. I mean, you can see really quickly in the story why this guy won a Nobel Prize. Yes, absolutely. His writing is incredible. Yes. And we should clarify that. Sienkiewicz uh -huh. did not win the Nobel Prize specifically for any one book. Yeah. That's not how the Nobel Prize works. He was actually awarded the Nobel Prize in 1905 for his contributions to epic literature. Yeah. Is what it said. Wow. So yeah, I love the epic love story and the variety of characters and how he brings to life such a unique time in both Roman history and Christian history. 
And I thought all of that when I first read this book as a teenager, and I had all of those same reactions again when I reread the book for this episode. What about you, Gwen? What was your initial reaction to Quo Vadis once I finally told you that you had to read it and review it with me? <laughs> well, I've been meaning to get to this book, and I'm so glad that you asked me to review this with you because I did want to read it. And I was very impressed with Senkevich's extensive knowledge of the time period and how mm -hmm. he seamlessly wove it into the tale. Right. Wow. Yeah. The fact and fiction are blended so well in this book. He did such a tremendous job with the burning of Rome and the start of the Christian persecution. Mm -hmm. And he brought me right into the horrific experience of all that through characters who made it all so very personal. Yes, absolutely. I never felt like I was getting a boring history lesson. Mm -hmm. I was also struck by how accurately he portrayed the Romans' penchant for... <laughs> Luxury, bathing, and entertainment. <laughs> Almost too accurate sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And how they interacted with the slaves who worked around them. Yeah. And even their frequent mentions of the gods and current rulers, wars, celebrities. Yes. It all felt true to what a Roman would discuss. Yeah, exactly. None of it felt gratuitous. Like yeah. he was just throwing it in there to show off how much he knew. It all felt very organic to the story. Yes, absolutely. And to the characters. Mm -hmm. The characters were amazing. Oh, gosh. They were yes. well-developed and they felt true to the culture. Every detail really immersed me into the first century world. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed it, despite how annoying Vinicius was at first. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, I know we keep talking about that. But yeah. if you like Marcus Vinicius at the beginning of this book, there is something wrong with you. <laughs> but he's worth following. Yes, you have to stick with it. Absolutely. Okay, I know you research this for every episode, Amy. So I'm really curious to know how Quo Vadis was received when it first came out. Well, while Quo Vadis was indeed a phenomenal international bestseller, it did receive some mixed reviews. Mm -hmm. Some critics called it body and gory and melodramatic, mm -hmm. which, yeah, okay, I can actually see where they're coming from. Yeah, the story definitely makes no apologies for the ancient Roman culture. No, it doesn't. I found Nero and his wild parties quite accurate. <laughs> a little too accurate sometimes. Yes, maybe. yes. <laughs> and so I can definitely see how critics of the day might call it body. And some of Vinicius's emotions did seem a little over the top, <laughs> especially at the start of the novel. To put it mildly, right? <laughs> yes, there's no middle ground for him. No, there is not. He is all in or... All in. All the time. <laughs> so yeah, the reviews were kind of all over the place for this one. Some of the reviews praised the book for its poignant depiction of the martyrs mm -hmm. and the whole triumph of Christianity over the evil Roman Empire. Uh -huh. And others of them complained that the Roman characters were too fascinating and the Christian ones were too boring and that it should be the other way around. Mm -hmm. Again, kind of agree. Yep. But, of course, none of that mattered. Quo Vadis was a big blockbuster. It sold half a million copies the first year after it was translated into English. Oh, wow. And everyone, even the critics who panned the story itself, everyone praised Sinkevich as a genius. They actually used that word. Wow, yeah. And many of them called him one of the best writers, not just of the time, but of the century. Well, I can definitely agree with that. Yeah. I was really impressed with his writing. Me too. And even people today who are reading this book, even if they don't like the book, it's pretty universal that, like the story or not, this guy could 
write. Yes, he could. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Exactly. And after reading his writing, I can see why he would win such a prestigious award. Mm -hmm. What else did you find out about him? Well, of course, in looking up all these original reviews, I did also look up information about Sienkiewicz himself. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot that we could say about him. He actually had a very interesting life. We don't have time to really go into all of that. However, I think the most important thing that modern readers need to know about Henrik Sienkiewicz before they read Quo Vadis is the fact that he was a very devout Roman Catholic mm -hmm. and also that he was very proud of being Polish and used his writing as much as he possibly could to promote the Polish cause for independence. Oh, interesting. For example, when he won the Nobel Prize in 1905, mm -hmm. he stood there with his award saying that he was proof that Poland was not dead and defeated, but alive and victorious. Mm -hmm. And I love that spirit. And I think yes. that really comes across in his writing, it even does. in a story about ancient Rome. It that does. same unconquerable spirit is really infused into his yes, work. Yes, I loved that. I did catch on to that. I loved the parallel between what was going on in his day and what was going on in the story. I, I just loved that. Yeah, 19th century Poland and first century Rome. The connections mm -hmm. are incredible. They are. So let's dive into talking about these characters here, because as big as this plot is, it is a character-driven novel. Mm -hmm. And honestly, even though Marcus Vinicius and Lygia, his Christian love interest, are set up to be the hero and heroine of Quo Vadis, they are actually not my favorite characters. <laughs> That's true. Mine neither. My favorite character was Petronius. Yes. Petronius steals every scene that he is in. He really does. That is the honest truth. And it's because he had such witty dialogue mm -hmm. and he just played Nero like a harp. <laughs> totally does. He knew exactly what to say to Nero when disaster loomed. And the way in which he vented his frustration regarding Nero just felt like someone today might complain about a boss they didn't enjoy working yes, for. Yes, so relatable. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. He was realistic about the personal risks he took as someone in close mm -hmm. connection to Caesar. And my favorite scene with him was the one in which he just calmly rode through an angry mob. <laughs> That was so great. Yes, I love that scene. It really showed off his courage and come what may attitude toward life. I loved it. Yes. In the movie, in the book, Petronius has always been the star of this story for me. Yeah. And fun fact that readers should know, Gaius Petronius is a real life person. Yes. So I have always found it absolutely fascinating to see how Sienkiewicz has fleshed out this person yes. in the terms of this story. And from what I have read and studied about the real Gaius Petronius, I have always felt like Sienkiewicz just nails this character. Yes. He's a heroic character, but he's a very flawed hero. Those are the best, though. Yeah. I mean, he's just... Oh, there's not enough words to describe how cool Petronius is. Yes. And he is the first character you meet in the book. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it does kind of feel like Sienkiewicz is setting him up to be the main character of the story. It does. But it's also clear pretty early on that the characters we are supposed to care about the most are Marcus Vinicius and Lygia. Yeah. Vinicius did have to grow on me, though. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> He is terrible at the start of this book. 
Yeah, not only was he pure stalker when it came to Lydia, the way he treated his slaves had me cringing over and over. Oh, gosh, yes. I did enjoy Vinicius after his conversion when he began to put himself in Lydia's shoes Mm -hmm. and realize how his actions were costing her. Yes. And then he began to respect her Christian beliefs and want to marry her. That's when we can really get on board with supporting him and cheering him on. Yes. And the author did such a great job of showing Vinicius progressing from lust to true love. Yes. He just grows on you as the novel progresses. Yes. And that is exactly why we chose the scene that we are going to share with you today. We are thrilled to welcome to our Gibson Girl Review family, one of our new Gibson men readers, Hugh Weller Pooley. Hugh is from England. Oh, cool. So those of you like me who love those British accents (laughs) will definitely want to stay tuned. Yes. Hugh is going to read for us today the scene where we see this first tiny seed of transformation taking root in Marcus Vinicius. Mm -hmm. This is a point in the story where Lygia has run away from him. And he's tracked her down to this secret gathering of the Christians outside the city where they're going to hear the Apostle Peter speak. Mm -hmm. Vinicius and his evil cohorts are sitting there watching and plotting during this whole service while they're waiting for just the right moment to snatch Lygia away again. Yeah. But of course, as he sits waiting for this opportune moment to kidnap Lygia... Marcus can't help but hear what is being said in the meeting. Mm -hmm. And while he waits and listens, he begins to realize that what he's hearing may actually change his life. It seemed to Vinicius that that night would never end. He wished now to follow Lygia as soon as possible and seize her on the road or at her house. At last, some began to leave the cemetery, and Kylo whispered, Let us go out before the gate, Lord, for we have not removed our hoods and people look at us. Such was the case, for during the discourse of the Apostle, all had cast aside their hoods so as to hear better, and they had not followed the general example. Kylo's advice seemed wise, therefore. Standing before the gate, they could look at all who passed, Ursus it was easy to recognize by his form and size. But they had to wait long yet. The cocks had begun to crow before dawn when they saw Ursus coming through the gate, and with him Lygia. They were accompanied by a number of other persons. It seemed to Kylo that he recognized among them the great apostle. Next to him walked another old man, considerably lower in stature, two women who were not young, and a boy who lighted the way with a lantern. After that handful followed a crowd, about two hundred in number. Vinicius, Kylo, and Croton walked with these people. Yes, Lord, said Kylo, thy maiden is under powerful protection. That is the great apostle with her, for see how passing people kneel to him. People did, in fact, kneel before him, but Vinicius did not look at them. He did not lose Lygia from his eyes for a moment. He thought only of bearing her away, and, accustomed as he had been in wars to stratagems of all sorts, he arranged in his head the whole plan of seizure with soldierly precision. He felt that the step on which he had decided was bold, but he knew well that bold attacks give success generally. The way was long. Hence, at moments, he thought too of the gulf which that wonderful religion had dug between him and Lygia, 
Now he understood everything that had happened in the past and why it had happened. Lygia he had not known hitherto. He had seen in her a maiden wonderful beyond others, a maiden toward whom his feelings were inflamed. He knew now that her religion made her different from other women, and his hope that feeling, desire, wealth, luxury would attract her, he knew now to be a vain illusion. Finally, he understood this, which he and Petronius had not understood, that the new religion engrafted into the soul something unknown to that world in which he lived, and that Lygia, even if she loved him, would not sacrifice any of her Christian truths for his sake, and that if pleasure existed for her, it was a pleasure different altogether from that which he and Petronius and Caesar's court and all Rome were pursuing. Every other woman whom he knew might become his mistress, but that Christian would become only his victim. And when he thought of this, he felt anger and burning pain, for he felt that his anger was powerless. To carry off Lygia seemed to him possible. He was even sure that he could do so. But he was equally sure that, in view of her religion, he himself, with his bravery, was nothing. That his power was nothing, and that through it he could effect nothing. That Roman military tribune, convinced that the power of the sword and the fist which had conquered the world would command it forever, saw for the first time in life that beyond that power there might be something else. I love this scene because it is the first tiny instant where you begin to ask, can he change? Is he going to change? Mm -hmm. It is so subtle and so gradual. And I actually love that he doesn't like hear a sermon and boom, he's rushing forward to get baptized. Yes, absolutely. His transformation is a very long process and Sienkiewicz lets him continue to struggle. Yes, he does. Vinicius remains a very human character who Mm -hmm. messes up a lot. (laughs) Yes. But again, I love that Sienkiewicz shows us this struggle and that whole journey begins right here in this moment, in this scene, which is why I love it. It really is a great scene. He's just starting to realize that his conquering attitude is only going to hurt Lydia. Yeah. And it just leaves him so perplexed. Yeah, that whole thought that she will only ever be my victim. Yes. That is such a powerful realization. It was perfect, yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed his internal struggle and his discovery that not everyone thinks the way he does. I mean, it's just, like you said, it's so subtle. Yes, and I think that's the true brilliance of Quo Vadis, the way that these characters are just so complex and diverse uh-huh. and alive. Mm-hmm. I even love the character of Nero. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. For the very same reason. He's not just evil arch villain, you know? Yeah. Even he has depths and complexities. Oh, yes, he did. And you love to hate him, but you also kind of hate to hate him, too. And it's amazing. 
I can definitely see what some of those original critics meant mm -hmm. about the Roman characters being more interesting than the Christian ones because they are much more multifaceted oh, yeah. than a character like Lygia. Yes, Nero was extremely, extremely well-written. Oh, yeah. He was cruel, he was self-centered, and completely obsessed with his perceived calling as an artist, mm -hmm. which is exactly what history tells us about him. Exactly. Again, we're talking about a fictionalization of a real-life person that just amplifies it yeah. to this amazing degree. It does. Elijah was probably my least favorite character yeah. just because she was a little bit of a Mary Sue. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little. And while I appreciated her steadfastness and defying Vinicius and holding true to her principles, she mm -hmm. really needed a little more flaws. Yeah, I completely agree. I have never felt particularly drawn to Lygia either, because like you said, she's just a little too perfect. Yeah. But at the same time, I can see why Sienkiewicz wrote her that way. Mm -hmm. She's got to be like this ultimate ideal in order to have the effect that she does have on a character like Vinicius. Yes, you are very right about that. You have to see the contrast between the two, and he just makes the contrast extreme for sure. Mm -hmm. And yes, Vinicius is your classic reformed bad boy hero mm -hmm. that many of us love, myself included. <laughs> and it doesn't hurt that whenever I read this book, I'm seeing Robert Taylor's face, okay? <laughs> so yeah, like we said, even though Vinicius's badness at the beginning of the story is almost too bad to bear. Mm -hmm. I promise folks, stick with it. Yes. Stick with it. Give him a chance. Yes. And that's one of the things that really surprised me about the book is how unapologetically Sienkiewicz shows us Vinicius's faults in the beginning of the story. Yes, exactly. It's unvarnished. It was. And I guess it surprised me because, you know, today authors are overly cautious about creating characters that a reader may not like. And yeah. I suppose I've just gotten used to that approach. Yeah, definitely. It takes an incredible amount of skill. It does. To transform a character like that over the length of a story. It really does. And maybe we're just lazy as writers nowadays. <laughs> we don't want to earn that goodwill by the end. We want to have our readers start with goodwill and liking all of our characters. <laughs> I mean, Sienkiewicz clearly set himself the challenge of yes, making this did. character change and making our opinions of this character change along with him. Yeah. Vinicius and Petronius, they were just so raw and real. Mm -hmm. It was refreshing to the part of me that loves historical fiction and yes. experiencing different values and worldviews. I mm -hmm. love that as a reader. Yeah. But it did make Vinicius unlikable at first. It reminds me so much of Saul, yeah. who later becomes the Apostle Paul, mm -hmm. who is another character in the story, thinking of how terrible he was and being converted to one of the pillars of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. I can see some parallels between that. Like if he's bad enough to be reformed, well, Vinicius can certainly be bad enough to change too. Yeah. But yeah, you're going to see things at the beginning of the story that are just shocking. Yeah. But like we said, stick with it because this whole story is about the redemption of this character. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is set up to turn this bad boy into the good guy. And it's so well done. It is. It really is. One of the biggest surprises for me, and we've talked about this a little bit, is that level of detail. Mm -hmm. Sienkiewicz brings so much to the table in terms of Roman life and Roman aristocracy, even to the things, like you said, of them admiring each other while they're bathing <laughs> and showering, you know? Yeah. It's kind of weird, but that is absolutely true to what Roman culture and history were like, right? It was. Mm -hmm. And like you said, he 
doesn't sugarcoat it. He puts the whole depravity of the Roman culture from this time period on full display. Mm -hmm. But the happy part of that surprise is that because of the character of Vinicius, we as readers see and experience all of this debauchery from both sides, mm -hmm. which is actually an incredible accomplishment to pull off as a writer. It is. It's a masterclass in fiction writing. It is. And I was also surprised by the ending. Oh, the ending? <laughs> yes. Great ending. But I thought it would go in a completely different direction from the way the climax was building. Yes. The ending of Quo Vadis is way too good to not talk about. This part of my conversation with Gwen has been removed from today's episode and put into The Spoiler Room, our brand new mini-episode series available exclusively on our website, gibsongirlreview.com. So if you've already read Quo Vadis, or at least seen the movie, or if you don't care about spoilers and want to hear our thoughts about the whole book anyway, just click on the link in today's show notes and follow the prompts to join Dana's Club our new membership portal where you can access not only the Spoiler Room mini-episodes, but all of the new bonus content we are featuring this season. And for a limited time, membership in Dana's Club is 100% free. But this offer won't last, so don't delay. Head to GibsonGirlReview.com today to join Dana's Club and listen to The Spoiler Room. So after talking about the surprises of this book, what were some of the challenges of Quo Vadis for you as a reader? Well, the constant switch from Marcus, which is Vinicius's given name, to his Jen's name, Vinicius, <laughs> that threw me off a few times. Yeah, they do kind of appear interchangeably. They do. When I first started reading, it was almost like they were just two different people. And I was like, who is this person? <laughs> but eventually I got used to it. Yeah. I was also challenged by the direction the story took as the persecution of Christians began. I got so depressed when chapters <laughs> and chapters remained bleak as yes. people were killed. It does start going down a dark hole. It does. I stopped looking forward to reading the novel for a time. Mm. Well, I did read it, but I just stopped looking forward to it. Yeah. And it was also a little bit unbelievable to me that none of the Christians ever screamed or groaned while yeah. being tortured in the arena. Yeah. But... Could that be coming from a Catholic idealization of Christians? That was kind of my impression that Sienkiewicz as an author was bringing that veneration to this whole real life historical event of the persecution and the torture of the Christians in the arena. Yeah. So yeah, I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt yeah. in terms of realism versus idealism, because I think it still fits the story. Yeah, makes sense. And there were some terms and phrases that made the story a little bit hard to understand. Unless you speak Latin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was grateful to have help from an audio version oh, narrated by Peter Wickham. That's a great idea. Yeah. So I was reading the English translation and listening to this audio version. And it really did help with some of the Latin terms. Yeah. The narrator replaced words such as thou and thy with you. Mm -hmm. And he also translated some of the Latin words most readers won't recognize. Yeah. For example, in place of prandium which is meal. Yeah. And instead of tabernay, he says taverns. Yeah. Language is definitely a challenge in this book. That's because we're talking about a translation. Mm -hmm. Unless you're Polish and you can read this novel in Polish, you're going to be dealing with some kind of interpretation of the story. Yeah. Sienkiewicz himself only ever authorized one English translation, and that was by his friend, Jeremiah Curtin, 
who was an American attache in Russia. Mm -hmm. And it's the main one that most people know. Yes. But there were many original reviews from 1897 that criticized this translation as being almost too good hmm. in that it was too literal to Polish idioms and syntax so that sometimes it didn't make sense in English. Mm -hmm. And Curtin's translation does leave in all of these Latin words like frigidarium. Yeah. And he puts asterisks and footnotes to explain and define them. And yeah, that does pull you out of the story a bit. Yeah, it does. There was a second very popular translation, albeit an unauthorized one, by Dr. S.A. Binion, which purported from page one of its preface to be the, quote, good English translation. Mm -hmm. So as I was reading original reviews in 1897 and also original advertisements for these two different translations, I became really intrigued and decided to hunt down a copy of this Binion translation to see for myself. Mm -hmm. And to be perfectly honest, I can kind of see what those critics were talking about. Uh -huh. Both of these translations have the characters speaking like Shakespeare, like the King James Bible. Yeah. But the Binion translation does seem to flow a little more smoothly. Uh-huh. It does simplify the Latin into everyday words and phrases. You know, for example, instead of frigidarium, it simply says the cooling room. Uh-huh. But overall, they really aren't that different. And for those of you who want to read Quo Vadis, mm -hmm. we have links in our show notes today to both translations because you really can't go wrong with either one. They're both good. Yes, absolutely. Besides the language, I do think some modern readers will find it challenging to read about all of the depravity and immorality in the Roman culture and society. Yes. There are moments when you really wish he would leave a little bit more to the reader's imagination. Yes. And maybe not provide so many details. But even as you're cringing a little bit at some of the scenes he's describing, you are fully aware of why he isn't holding back. Mm -hmm. Because if he doesn't show you how truly dark this darkness is, he can't show you the full light of this transformation that characters like Vinicius are going through yeah. and experiencing in this story, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And that directly ties into the quote that we chose for today's episode title. Mm -hmm. And that quote is, bright garments frequently cover deep wounds. Oh, that's good. These characters, this plot, the whole book itself, the time in which this book was published, it is all about these bright garments of fame and wealth and decadence and materialism, mm -hmm. debauchery, self-indulgence, you name it. Mm -hmm. Sienkiewicz does not shy away from showing any of that. Yeah. And at the same time, he goes underneath it and exposes it for being a bright garment that is masking the fears and insecurities, the crumbling of this Roman civilization as they know it in the time, the possibility of civil war. All of this is happening not just in the first century Roman period he's writing about, yeah. but in the 1890s he is living in. Yeah. This is exactly why the Gilded Age is called the Gilded Age. Yeah. It's the perfect quote for the story. Glitter and glitz covers a world of hurt and only mm -hmm. Christ is the answer. Absolutely. And as some modern commentators love to point out, we here in the 21st century, are living in the exact same kind of Gilded Age mm -hmm. ourselves. Exactly. 
The civil unrest and the corruption and downfall of a powerful people are definitely relevant to readers today. I absolutely agree. I have to say, I didn't pick up on a lot of this when I read the book the first time as a teenager because I was just caught up in the story. Uh But reading it now as a historian, it definitely makes me geek out. (laughs) Yeah. Because, I mean, we're talking about themes Mm -hmm. and relevancy that span 2,000 years between ancient Rome, Gilded Age Europe and America, and the 21st century. Yeah. It all connects. It does. And it's just mind-blowing how relevant this book's themes still are. Yes. So yes, in case you couldn't tell, we are raving about this book. (laughs) This is a very positive review here. I am definitely a huge fan of Quo Vadis as a story. Mm -hmm. I am even more a fan of Quo Vadis as a writer Mm -hmm. and how skillfully Henrik Sienkiewicz crafted this story. Yeah. I love it. I did too. Quo Vadis is a book that modern readers will absolutely be able to relate to, no doubt. Yes. I would recommend Quo Vadis to those who enjoy historical fiction about the ancient Roman era, or even if they just want to learn about the time period and how the persecution of Christians began. This is an excellent read for that. And it's also an incredible read for writers. Like mm-hmm. we said, if you want to study the craft of writing, yeah, this is a great book to pick apart. He does some amazing things in terms of plotting and pacing and foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite scenes are the small ones like Marcus and Lydia having a quiet moment in the garden watching the sunset. Yes, I love that scene. And the sky looks like it's on fire. Yeah. As they're looking at the Roman city skyline. <laughs> like it's yeah. completely foreshadowing the fire that's to come. Oh, yeah. You did such a great job with that. And then as they're sitting there watching this beautiful sunset, you hear lions roaring from the distant mm-hmm. arena. You know, again, Just little foreshadowing moments like that that just continually build the tension of this story. I absolutely love it. I did too, yeah. Honestly, I think we could keep going for a few more hours talking about (laughs) all the great things in this book. Yes. But sadly, it is time to close the cover on Quo Vadis by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Special thanks to today's guests, our guest reader, Hugh Weller-Pooley, and our first guest reviewer, Gwen Gage. Thank you so much for being here today, Gwen. Well, thank you for inviting me. We'll have you back for another book soon. Yes, I definitely (laughs) would like that. All right, folks. Well, join us next time when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel. And until then, keep reading like a Gibson girl. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com. And now the lawnmower stops. (laughs) 